What ends up happening is you get into a marketing role, maybe you're new at it or you've just moved over to digital marketing or inbound marketing and you see this post on best practices. And then you go and you're like, okay, I'm gonna go and implement all these things that I just saw HubSpot or Moz or any of these great companies do. And while all these companies can sort of give a leading guideline as to things that are working, if you just mimic that same playbook, with the growth mindset, it's really not gonna work. Within the growth mindset, it's really about what is it that our specific users want and how are they thinking about that in the context of how they're using our product. Hey, and welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. This is Jeff, I'm a UX engineer at HubSpot. This is Austin, I'm a UX designer at HubSpot. And this is Matt, and I'm a growth engineer here at HubSpot. So today, what we're hoping to talk about is content. And we needed some help with this because honestly, like the three of us really don't have a whole lot of real experience in the content world, and content is a really important part of the growth and UX model. So we brought in a special guest here today. We're joined by Anum Hussein, who is a senior growth marketer here at HubSpot. And just to start off with a really interesting story, Anum actually recruited me to HubSpot. She was guest lecturing at one of my marketing classes at UMass. And I went up to her after I talked to her and I just had to work here after talking to her. And after that, I then recruited Austin and Jeff. So really, Anum <laughs> is kind of like the fairy godmother of this podcast. So. With that, Anam, yeah. would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Anam Hussein, and clearly I'm the fairy godmother of this <laughs> podcast, which is pretty cool. Um, I've been at HubSpot for four and a half years now. I started here as an intern in blogging. I was studying journalism at Emerson College here locally in Boston. And so uh, marketing and blogging was a very natural fit from that. Everyone was looking for journalists to come and do their content for them. Since then, I've had a variety of roles. I've led our social media lead generation team. I created endless offers. Uh, if you've seen any of HubSpot's eBooks or webinars or templates, I worked on those for a good year. And then after a while of sort of feeding this amazing HubSpot machine, I was itching to go and build and start from scratch and build something myself. And so the opportunity to work on a new division within HubSpot came up, which at the time it was called Signals, since rebranded to Sidekick. And I jumped on that ship as its first marketer. It was me, one sales guy, a head of product, and a bunch of engineers who um, looked at me like, what is a marketer and what is she doing here? <laughs> so that was an interesting first experience. But since then, the team has grown from eight people to our division, which is now probably close to 70. Since I've joined HubSpot, we've gone from 100 and something to over 1,000 employees. We've gone from a little startup to a publicly traded company. It's been a really great experience seeing the company grow in all those ways. And one of the challenges that was most important to me, which I'm super stoked to talk about here, is my time on the Sidekick team and building out our own content strategy. We got to build our own blog, our own content presence, and our own brand name from scratch. So sort of the thing I'm most proud of and really excited to geek out over today. Awesome. awesome. And I saw uh, a presentation that you did at Inbound this year uh, that I thought was really, really interesting. So one of the unique challenges of the sales division was that we were B to C to B, which is a very different model from what most people are used to. And 
like just you, you talked about how that relates to content and how you shape your content strategy around that, which I just thought was fascinating. Uh, we don't have the minions here to, to show to everyone, <laughs> but that was a, a very important part of that presentation. Um, so I, I'm still curious, like when did you, at what point did you realize that you had to do something radically different for your content strategy because of that problem? And if you want to just talk about like a little bit of how you generally solved it. Sure. So for those who don't know what the term B2C to B is, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's business to consumer to business. And the whole concept is that instead of a business going directly to a business or a business going directly to a consumer, the consumer is sort of the main stakeholder on the way to acquiring the whole business. So in the sidekick model, the idea was if we can target sales reps, who want to use our product, we can then get them to influence their managers to buy the product versus going straight to the manager. Mm -hmm. Sort of creates an adoption cycle right within the company and makes people really excited about the product versus it being forced down on them through an executive. So that was sort of the idea and that naturally led to a very different content model. Now, I'm not gonna sit here and pretend like I looked at this and was like, wow, we need to do something revolutionary, literally different. I simply started doing the playbook that I already knew. That's actually what I imagined happened though. <laughs> you have like this revelation, like the light was shining down on you and everything. Yeah, I wish, I wish I was that smart. Um, but really what happened is I started running the B2B playbook that I already knew and that I had already learned at HubSpot and it just wasn't working. I was doing the same blogging tactics I knew, the same mm. social media tactics I knew and we weren't generating enough momentum. The thing that really started triggering it, I know, you know something that we wanted to talk about later as well is SlideShare, where I was super passionate about SlideShare just sort of on my own. I've always loved to learn how to design, I'm not a designer, but learn to love as much as I can. And so I built this slide deck about one of the topics that uh, the sales rep on our team was covering and it just took off. It started getting a lot of users, it was working, everyone on the team was on board with it, and I was like, wow, we generated more users from this ungated, completely free piece of content than we did from every single thing we did mm -hmm. in the B2B playbook. And that was what triggered, okay, it's time for us to really rethink how we're doing our content for this model, and, started, and led to a series of experiments, figuring out, okay, what are some of the new things we can try in order to ultimately formulate this playbook, and it took about three to four months of experimentation with different channels such as LinkedIn Pulse, SlideShare, eBooks, SEO, mm -hmm. web pages, and a series of other things that ultimately led to, okay, here are the pieces that are working, let's put this together in some cohesive yeah. manner. So it's sort of like you were going out there and experimenting with different channels and different ways to market and just figuring out for yourself which things were working and you almost created this entirely new way for our business to market that we hadn't done before. And thinking about like the context of what we're discussing today, like focusing on content and, and growth marketing, a lot of this stuff is new to a lot of people. It's kind of a new industry and as a result, it's a lot of things coming together, different experiments from different angles totally. and everything like that. From your perspective and your experience, how would you define growth and content marketing and what what do you think sets it apart from like traditional marketing? And is there anything that you can think of that, that really, really comes into that as like core things that any growth marketer should be doing? Yeah, I think, I think one of the fundamental things, and we say this outside of the growth context, but matters even more within the growth context, is really knowing your personas and your audience. What ends up happening is you 
get into a marketing role, maybe you're new at it or you've just moved over to digital marketing or inbound marketing and you see this post on best practices and then you go and you're like, okay, I'm going to go and implement all these things that I just saw HubSpot or Moz or any of these great companies do. And while all these companies can sort of give a leading guideline as to things that are working, if you just mimic that same playbook, with the growth mindset, it's really not going to work. Within the growth mindset, it's really about what is it that our specific users want and how are they thinking about that in the context of how they're using our product. And so what made the Sidekick content strategy so different ultimately was that when we posted a blog post, people would connect the stuff we were talking about with our product, which is not something that typically happened with general B2B context. It was all about just educating the user base on the industry. But with our content, it was not just about okay, we're going to write the 10 best things that you should know about Facebook. It was more, okay, here's one story that is really compelling, got a user to a certain type of revenue, and the reason why is because they used our product. Now, the story itself is compelling whether you use Sidekick or not, but if you did use Sidekick, that content became way more relevant to you. And so just really knowing what our audience cared about and how they use our product lent itself to a series of stories and use cases that made for really good content. How do you determine like what your your personas are and what your audience wants? Where do you where do you kind of get a feel for that from? So this comes directly from Brian Balfour when he first joined. Previous and I know, guest on yeah. the UX and Growth podcast. I just got there. That's CTA previous. Yeah, first episode I believe. So um, Brian Balfour was my manager for uh, two years and. The very first thing he did when he joined our team was we need to run persona research. And the way that we did that is we already had a user base, um, not a huge one at the time, but we had a user base. So it's like, let's just go in and interview them. So we did three cohorts of interviews. We interviewed current active users of our product. We interviewed churned users, trying to figure out why they leave, things of that nature. And then we went on LinkedIn and we each, uh, there's three of us on the team at the time, we each just went and found sales reps to interview from our networks. And we compiled those interviews all together to get a really good view of how people in our targeted uh, audience think, what they care about, how they operate in their day-to-day, and then at the very end, we would also ask them questions about Sidekick to understand how they used it, why it mattered to them, why they didn't. And by comparing and contrasting those things, you would find what the theme is amongst all of them. And the theme that we had found at the time was that all of our users had this idea of wanting to control their destiny. And having that theme in mind was so much more important than knowing that all of our users like X feature, right? Because if we know that they, if they want to control their, their future, then the way we write our content, the way we present ourselves on our web pages, the way that we think about the features we're going to roll out are all towards, is it going to get people to that mission of controlling their destiny? Because if it's not, then it's probably not going to stick with them. So that's sort of how we did our user research. And we did that when we first started. And then we did that again a year later just to sort of retest out exactly what our audience is thinking. And we had like a larger sample size of users. But sort of the same theme stood true even then. Very cool. I really like that. What you're talking about with every audience is wholly unique for every brand and company, and you need to adopt your content strategy based on that. And that is something I think a lot of people miss when you look at the different blogs out there and different content strategies. So much, so many of them just look the same. Yeah. You know, and like that's a big problem. For and sure. It's like so painfully obvious if you're working on something like onboarding for a product. You know that your product is unique, your audience for that product is unique. You need to experiment and figure out what is the optimal onboarding flow. 
And you really need to think about your content strategy the exact same way. Right, and even with onboarding too, there's a lot of best practices around how to go about onboarding and what mm -hmm. like the cycle should be. But in the early days of Sidekick, Matt and I would work together where you know he was running the onboarding experiments, but even the content and the copy that's used within those experiments mm -hmm. should be a core to your content strategy. Because if you're not thinking about that copy the right way, right. you're still not going to get the results right. that you want. That's, that's kind of like why I think content is so important in your growth model is because like uh, the, the message and the way that you talk to your users and the microcopy and the way you represent your brand needs to be consistent throughout the entire user experience and that starts all the way back at that first touch point. Like when they clicked on that first ad, what was the context of the ad, what expectations did it set and then that needs to be echoed through all your content, needs to be echoed through your onboarding, through your products and like that's really a tough thing to be consistent with, you right. know? And so like, it is super important uh, to like talk to your marketers on your team, talk to your engineers, talk to your designers, and like make sure that you you have that consistency. And I think that's where the persona research can come into play as well, yep. is because if it transcends everyone on the team, you're all bought into the same mission. I think mm -hmm. it's really easy for product, marketing, sales to have differing opinions on a way to tackle a certain issue or a certain, um, release and when you're all moving towards this same mission and you know exactly what your audience wants, there's no disagreement because it's like, well, we know what the audience cares about. We kind of have to go in that direction. Mm -hmm. So do you think that the first step, if you're going to adopt a growth model of any kind, is to identify your, your personas and really invest in that first step before you do anything because everything is gonna like be based around that. For sure, I 100% think so. And whenever I give this advice to startups, they are always hesitant and I guarantee you half of them don't actually do it because it doesn't feel tangible. You're mm -hmm. not getting some immediate result. You're not getting some immediate proof to show your executive team, oh, we got X many leads today or we got X many sales today. It's a very intangible thing. It's like you're coming back with being like, now I know how our persona feels. Yep. <laughs> Which feel, it's, you know, it's a little touchy-feely, but it's it, that's really at the interest point of understanding how your user base operates which just ends up being really beneficial with everything you do mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that's I think that that's like one of the tough things with personas obviously is that like it, the way that you develop them and the the insight that you put into like your development process is really critical right otherwise right. you could be steering yourself in the wrong direction but I am I've noticed that something at HubSpot that we do is that our personas evolve as we collect more data and as the company evolves just like any other living document that we may have so you were talking about the ways that you all developed your personas and the ways that you sort of developed content around those personas, it seemed very qualitative to me, right? Like you were actually meeting with these people and talking with them. Yeah. Did you find as this sidekick brand grew uh, that you were able to, to pull more quantitative insights and, and understand from like the content that you were creating maybe through a backdoor or whatever that that, that, that could also go into the personas and, and influence the content? It Further? definitely did. So when we first did our persona research, it was very qualitative. As you said, we were meeting with these people. A lot of them, we met with them in person or on Skype. We would take them out to lunch or for a coffee or for, I think I took one guy to Georgetown Cupcakes. So I was sick of having <laughs> coffee that day. So I was like, I actually drink chai, but still. Uh, so we did something different. But as we went on, a couple things happened. One, it's 
we had, because we had so many more users, it was much faster to do a quantitative analysis and see, okay, you know, X many people are seeing this post or they're clicking on this thing and they're interacting with this image. We used a lot of heat mapping software from Crazy Egg, which gave us a lot of cool insights. But the thing that I thought was actually the coolest is when we saw the merge of the quantitative and qualitative. So when we did our second round of persona interviews, it was about a year and a half into after we had done the first round. And so instead of just following the same exact formula we did before, I first did a quantitative analysis of who our different segments even are and built a new segment. So for mm-hmm. example, we had one cohort that it that Dan Walchnot calls drive-by users, and so those were people who would sign up for Sidekick, get one note, go through the onboarding process, and then peace out. Like, and that, that was literally <laughs> it. And then we were like, okay, like, thanks for the drive-by. Like, why didn't you continue using the product, We, we right? had some other nicknames for it, too. We had some other nicknames. I'll stick with drive-by for now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... But the, the one of the really important things about that, when we quantified who our users were by cohorts, was that we are looking for large cohorts. Exactly. Like, we weren't looking at, like... Oh, like 5% of our users are like uh, parents or something. Like we were looking at like this huge chunk of users are drive-by users. This is a big area of opportunity. It was all usage-based. And so there was drive-by, there was churned, there was paid, and then we had what we called active users and Mm -hmm. super active users. So most people just have the active base, but we were looking at, okay, if you're active in a week, great. But who are the people who are like our super power users, people who are active, like all the time using Sidekick. So that, and we ended up with these five different buckets and we learned very different things from each, uh, each bucket. And we learned very different things from someone who's an active user versus a super active user. And so that was a really cool scenario in which we looked at both quantitative data to figure out what segments are and what our pools of audiences are based off of mm-hmm. usage data. And then we um, supported how those different cohorts feel and think and what they want with the qualitative interviews. What would you recommend to someone who's interested in doing these persona interviews that you actually like listen for and what kind of questions would you ask? So I think the most important thing is to really actively listen mm-hmm. in these interviews because when people are talking, it's usually the hidden gems or like the thing, the two words they said where you're like, wait, 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 I want to know more about that. It's not their like surface level response. And so first of all, we had these interviews scheduled for an hour because we knew it would take us at least 15 minutes to get to a point where someone was actually comfortable enough to say something valuable. You do a 10 minute interview, it's mostly just like, hi, my name's Adam, I work at HubSpot, I use Sidekick twice a week, mm-hmm. uh, on the weekends I go to the beach. Like, you know what I mean? You just get like some random information, you don't really get deep into them, you need to build trust you need to listen you need to get them opened up and talking Um, a lot of what we do is repeating the question in different ways so it sounds like it's a completely different question but you're really just asking the same thing people end up saying wildly different things even though you're essentially asking for the same information in general and this also shocks people when we had these interviews 75% of the questions were about the person how do you spend your day? What do you think about all day? Um, are you the kind of person who hangs out with your coworkers or do you have a separate group outside of work? And that really was very telling. For example, we always ask the question of, what do you think about all day? Or why are you in the job you're in right now? And the thing that we found a lot for our particular audience was that they thought about how they're gonna one day become an entrepreneur. They were in this role because they thought sales was a very critical mm-hmm. step in one day becoming an entrepreneur. So if our, our, all of our content was about, oh, here's how to be the best sales rep possible, it's kind of just like, ah, cool, but their ultimate goal was to be an entrepreneur. So right. if it was like, okay, here's this story from this sales 
startup founder or here's this awesome sales story from this cool tech company that was what got people really interested because even though their job was sales their end goal was entrepreneurship and so that was what really attracted them to our content that's what they wanted to learn and breathe and live right because you don't want to just write content for the purpose of just moving the numbers and playing the numbers game you want people like addicted to your content right they just love it and they they actually gain value from it totally. which is an important part like i we were talking about this a little bit yesterday which is like just crap content world right. so it's, it's so many content marketing strategies to me from the outside looking in because i'm not a content marketer but it, it seems like it's it's a numbers game a lot of time we need to hit 10 posts we need to get like 100 users signed up or new customers or new leads or whatever it is and they're not as a result really like focusing on the quality of what they're producing and the story that they're telling and so it, it just seems like there's like this huge mismatch and like the irony of it is that you're actually gonna be more successful if you're not focusing on the numbers game yep. part of it yeah i mean it's a total vanity metrics game mm -hmm. It's very high level surface of oh we public we you know hit X post per month this week or we got this many um, emails sent out and that was something that I wanted to do differently, particularly because I didn't just want to spend my days writing content like that's not what I wanted to do. If I wanted to do that, I could just go you know I could just pursue my journalism career like I could just mm -hmm. sit there and write all day. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to create content. I wanted each piece to be really meaningful and impactful. So one of the things that we had implemented in terms of how we measured ourselves is most blogs measured themselves on the total number of subscribers they have. So it's like, oh, we have, you know, we hit 100,000 subscribers this year, and that was something important. But they didn't actually look at the engagement of those subscribers. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we learned from the growth world and one of the growth lessons that we applied to content was what we called a monthly active subscriber. So similar to how Sidekick was measured on weekly active users, people who are using our mm -hmm. product on a weekly basis, we measured our content based off of monthly active subscribers. So we looked at the number of people who are not only subscribed to our list, but actually clicking on our emails and reading our content. And so that was a number that we wanted to see up and to the right. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, it didn't matter if our overall subscriber list was dropping or growing. And obviously we cared about it a little bit to make sure that we're adding new people, but the number that really mattered was are we engaging more people with our content over time? Mm. And that was really, really mattered to us. And as a result of that, we got to do some really interesting things. One of them, which was pretty controversial at the time, is we ran unsubscribe campaigns every quarter. And so what would happen with these unsubscribe campaigns is we would look at our subscriber list and see if in the past 90 days, someone has been subscribed to our content for at least 90 days and has not clicked on any of our emails, not even opened our emails, not reading our content, we're going to unsubscribe them because it's not valuable to us to have these people in our database. and It's not valuable to them to be another one of their millions of emails hitting their promotions tab because what's going to end up happening is they're just going to start associating Sidekick with this annoyance, right? It's going to be like another Gap email or another yep. Macy's email. It's like, okay, I get it, Macy's. We, we all have the junk email account. Yeah, your 50th at. one day sale, yep. whatever. Um, so we didn't want to be that person in their inboxes and we were also an email product so we wanted to stay true to the fact that we respect email so we would run these unsubscribe campaigns and as a result we would you know drop from 60,000 subscribers to 20,000 subscribers but as long as the number of monthly active subscribers was still going up and to the right we knew we were right. succeeding because we were growing and how many people actually cared and engaged with our content right you weren't actually losing anything when you did that no. which is the the 
the, I guess, the lesson of that. And like the whole purpose, I would imagine, of why you want to focus on monthly active readers is that like a lot of a lot of times it's easy to look at content as just like a lead generation tactic. For sure. But you're not only just trying to generate leads, but you're also trying to stay relevant in your current customers' minds and you're trying to deliver good quality content. And content is also a means of improving customer retention as you're staying bring relevant. Bring that up next. Yep. Um, so it, Matt, it's like we talked yesterday and yeah. worked together for two years. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, Matt and I ran an experiment where mm-hmm. we wanted to see if our content, because content is typically seen as a channel for net new leads, we wanted to see what the impact of content was on our current user base. And so we ran an experiment to see if we subscribed all new users to our content automatically Mm -hmm. after a couple days of signing on and sent them our best posts, what would happen? And as a result, we saw that the users that were subscribed to our content had a a higher long-term retention than the users who didn't, because we were engaging them with pieces that were actually valuable to them as a part of their user experience. Because like I said earlier, the content we created wasn't just some random piece about the industry, it was very much connected to the product and the stories that we would tell was connected with how you could use the product, which led to people reading the content, staying engaged, and being longer term users of our product, which I thought was really cool. That's that's like such a refreshing way to think about content and to basically sort of change your perspective on on the role that certain assets in your site serve, right? right. Like you're basically saying, okay, a lot like the classic thought for, for blog co- content would be we have to generate some type of measurable leads or, you know, we have to get certain amount of social shares for brand recognition or whatever, but to take it and say, well, there's a lot more that content can actually do and to be able to prove that it affects retention, that's really, that's really pretty awesome. Yeah. But I imagine that like a, probably a big part of the reason why your your content was interesting to your users and you're you're able to increase retention as a result of it is because it was something that they actually wanted to read. It was something sure. they're willing to engage with. And I think Matt sort of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but there's like this big thing happening in, in growth marketing and content marketing right now where there's a mass of content that's like super low quality. It, it just turns into noise. Right. Like we all feel it when we look at our Facebook yeah. feeds or anywhere. So like for, for the average growth marketer or for, you know, in your experience, what do you think the the proper amount of quantity versus quality is? Like how do you gauge that? And if, if you're making a bet for quantity or if you're making a bet for quality, how do you justify that? Right. So... I think the easiest trap to fall into when you start in content marketing or you join a company to become a blogger is that you just start producing as much as possible. It's like, wow, we have this amazing blogger. She can produce 20 posts a week. That's that's amazing. That's awesome. And that's a sign of you being a great content marketer. And I think that's a really, that's an unfortunate thing. That that's the only measure we have of what makes a really great blogger worth hiring. I think that one thing that really needs to matter is when you're creating a piece of content looking around and there's sort of two tests to run. One is sort of looking at, okay, I'm going to Google this post idea that I have and has it already been written about? If so, should I really be writing about it? And then also looking at the quality of those pieces. So is this a piece that you could write better? Could you add more visuals? Could you make it a more interesting piece? That those two things are what I think a lot of people don't look at. It's like, well, I'm just going to write about X subjects because I think that 
our audience cares about them, but you didn't actually do the persona research, you didn't look around to see if people are already talking about it, you didn't look around to see if you could talk about it better, if you have a new perspective to give. And so one of the things that really mattered to us was, and one of the reasons that people write as, as, uh, as many posts as they do is because they're trying to rank in search. And so the idea is, is the more content we put out there, the more organic search traffic we're gonna get. But we had sort of looked at that when we first started the Sidekick blog and we were like, man, we're gonna have to write crap tons of content if we wanna win SEO that way. There must be another way that we can that we can do this. And so the reason that quality became at the center of what we were doing was because we realized that if we could create the best content on a particular subject versus the most content, there's probably an SEO play there. And so we took a bet on it. We didn't have any guaranteed answer that it was gonna work. I did look a lot at Help Scout, which is another Boston company that I really admire. I met with their head of marketing and they were making the low volume, high quality play work. And to the point where one of their pages on customer acquisition actually ranks above Wikipedia in search. Like that's how, yeah, yes. Uh, that is how powerful their content marketing is. So I was like, okay, if they can do it, there, there has to be something yeah. here. And so we took that bet and we started creating low quantity, high quality posts where every post was intended to rank in search. And as a result, we ended up ranking in search for a number of different posts because we really emphasized how well-researched that post was, what articles we linked to within that post, how we covered that topic, and then also how we covered that topic across our domain. So do we talk about it just in blog posts? Do we talk about it on other web pages? Do we tie our product pages to it? And it really became an entire SEO strategy versus just like, okay, we're gonna publish as many posts as we possibly yeah. can. It sounded like when you were evaluating the, the posts that you were gonna be creating and figuring out what's our SEO play, you you did a lot of like talking to different experts and and figuring out like different angles and stuff like that. For the average growth marketer, do you think that that they need to have a, a technical understanding of SEO? Like, how deep do you think uh, a growth marketer's SEO understanding needs to go? I think you either need to have a a slightly above average grasp of SEO or someone else at the company or on the team who really understands SEO who can sort of be someone you can lean on. If you're going into a, a team or a company that doesn't have any SEO experts and you don't know much about SEO, I think it's gonna be really, really difficult for you to grow. For example, I didn't have a lot of expertise on SEO when I first started, but again, my manager, Brian Balfour, had a lot of expertise within mm -hmm. SEO. So he taught me a lot and eventually he got to remove himself from the SEO piece of what we were doing, but he had to teach me those things so that I could run with it and I could roll with it. And so I think that Anyone could get that. You can take classes. There's some great resources. I would watch Ma's Whiteboard Fridays every week. There's a lot of ways you can learn that SEO, but to completely ignore it, I think it's be really difficult to succeed in growth marketing without it. Mm -hmm. And not just for content, mm -hmm. but you know, you need to know that for your product pages, for your website, for for everything related to all your web efforts, you need to yeah. have a good understanding of SEO. We know, uh, my team knows that you guys have a great understanding of it because <laughs> we recently merged a bunch of your huge long form content pages with the core HubSpot site. And like that happened over winter break. And then we came back after the new year and all of our top performing pages had changed because <laughs> there were like these, all these pages that Anam created that were not just bad, murdering everything else. <laughs> Outside of SEO though. So like it's, it sounded like you guys made some big SEO 
plays. But is there anything else that like you think really contributed to the success of that work? Like I know that SEO is reciprocal in a lot of ways, right? Like if you can pull a lot of traffic from from one area, that's going to help you rank in SEO better, and then that's sort of like a cyclical thing, right? But totally. so were there any other channels that you saw that were really strong? For your content? So I'll say two things. One, in terms of making that SEO channel work, we had to really think about what that page would look like. And so there's this great Whiteboard Friday video from Rand Fishkin on why good, unique content needs to die. And the idea is, is that before with SEO, you could pick a keyword, you could mention that keyword in a post, you could write a good piece of content, and then you're sitting there wondering why it hasn't ranked. And that used, that formula used to work. But now, Readers are looking for design, they're looking for visuals, they're looking for the experience of the page. And mm. so when we created those pages that you were referencing that now are some of the best uh, ranked pages for HubSpot, we created those with the design in mind. We had templates that you know Matt had started us off with to build because not all content marketers are web developers. So he would build out these pages for us that we could really quickly design a very visually engaging page we would do a lot of heat map testing, a lot of testing to see where people are clicking, what they're thinking about to make sure that those pages were as high quality as possible. And that's a lot of the reason why they ranked because even if there was already a number one spot for the phrase that we were targeting, if we created a better piece of content, a much higher quality piece of content, we could beat out that page. Even if it was on a great domain and it had lots of links because Google is really starting to value the experience of the page. The second thing is outside of SEO, the other channel that worked really well for us was SlideShare. And so what we learned with SlideShare was something very similar that we learned with these SEO web pages, which is that you have to put a lot of effort into them if you want it to work. So a lot of the slide decks that you see on SlideShare today are just someone gave a presentation and they just throw their slide decks up or there's a couple you know, quick thrown slides up with a lot of words on them. And what we found is if we spent a lot of time, made this like 30 to 70, slide slide deck where each one which each where each slide deck is telling a story there's proper calls to action that feel completely seamless within the piece we got a lot of click throughs and i remember my uh, my most meaningful slide share was in 2014 i think i, I was leaving for um for the fourth we had a long weekend for fourth of july i had just finished putting the slide deck together for one of our on behalf of one of our sales reps who had created an awesome blog post i repurposed it into the slide deck i had all the ctas in it i published it and i was like eh, probably not going to get like a ton of traffic since fourth of july weekend came back the next week and the entire product team was freaking out because we were getting all these users and they didn't know from where. Come to find <laughs> that my slide share got us over a thousand new users within oh like God. 24 hours, which is like unheard of. Like I, yeah. I, I have yet to create another slide share that's done that well. <laughs> um, our slide shares do generate hundreds of users each, which I think is pretty remarkable, right? For a piece of content mm -hmm. to be driving a hun hundreds of active users of your product. But that one had done over a thousand. That was when we were like, okay, like there's something going on here. And it was because, you know, I just happened to care about design and wanted to put it together something really strong, but it turns out that formula really worked and we ended up running a ton of experiments on SlideShare, figuring out where the best place to place our CTA was, mm -hmm. how to word that CTA, how to design that CTA, what were the different things we could do to really make every slide deck um, really meaningful. Now, have you written a, an article on the findings 
of SlideShare, or are you guys still trying to hash some things out? No, we, so I, uh, it's on my list of things to do. I've written one internally that HubSpot employees <laughs> can look at. I have not taken the time to publish one externally, but it's on my list of things to do because we ran so many SlideShare experiments, mm, yeah. um, and it's my, it's like my absolute favorite channel. My entire personal site is based off of me creating SlideShares. I wonder, though, like, if there's any coincidence in that. Like, I wonder if that channel works so good for us Partly, not entirely, but partly because maybe the people, the types of personas that go to use SlideShare match up really well with the sidekick persona. And so it just like clicked with them. Yeah, I mean, it's very possible. And I think it goes back to what I said earlier, when someone joins as a new marketer, they look at what one company is doing and they just mimic all those Mm -hmm. things. You know, everyone uses Twitter. Every company does. Twitter didn't work for sidekick. Like we spend some time on it and it became a good, you know, customer communication to when people had issues but other than that it wasn't really working and that's coming from someone who co-wrote Twitter for dummies right like Mm -hmm. and I had to accept that it wasn't going to work but a lot of marketers aren't willing to do that and they just keep trying to make the channels that everyone else is making work work no one was trying to make SlideShare work when we did but it Mm -hmm. worked for us and that that was really all that mattered Mm -hmm. I I feel bad now for for not mentioning right at the beginning that you co-wrote that's that's like one of the cool like I tell people sometimes like I work with someone that wrote a dummies book when we're like, right now, we're like, oh my god, that's so cool. No, I hey, I love Twitter for dummies. It does not need to define who I am in any way. So don't, don't worry about it. We'll leave it at that then. Uh, so one thing I'm also wondering is like, content seems like it's so important to invest in early on if you're going to do it. But it's one of those things where when you get started with it, you're not going to see a return for a while because the content needs to appreciate over time. It needs to gain that SEO momentum. It needs to compound upon itself. That's part of like the whole inbound thing. But right. I'm thinking back to like if I'm a startup or a company who's trying to adopt the growth model or trying to start to think about like what are our viable channels, like what is like the pep talk answer to them to like invest in content or at least like think about and kind of decide whether or not they should invest in content? Yeah, I mean it's not um, it's not an easy question to answer, and I get this question a ton because. So many people have such Mm -hmm. issues trying to prove the value of content marketing within an organization. I've yet to have the right answer, but within the startups, the example I'll give is sort of how we lived Mm -hmm. at that time and how we operated. Whenever you start with paid acquisition for a new product, because you've never done it before, there's a lot of momentum there and there's a lot of a lot to take in. So we sort of paired that with content and the idea that, okay, paid is gonna do really well because we have it's all new territory and there's tons of users to bring in. Content needs time to get to that level. Mm. So let's have them both launch and operate at the same time because paid will make up for what content isn't right now. And eventually as you know, dependency on paid decreases, the dependency, the, the dependency on content will have to increase. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of how we operate, where we knew we were gonna have both of these channels working. It was more about lean, a stronger lenience on paid, lighter lenience on content, but as we grew, those things were not, they would never come to a complete equilibrium, but at least, you know, making that teeter-totter effect a little bit more closer together. Interesting. So, in other words, eventually you will run out of people to advertise to for your target demographic and whatever channels you're looking at. And so the only scalable channel long-term is content. And so in order to leverage that at all, you have to start early. You have to, you have to start somewhere and you're going to, you're going to feel so much better two years into your startup thinking, mm-hmm. knowing that you already have some domain expertise build than two years later being like, crap, like we need to start a new channel, let's try content. Because content cannot be the channel that you start overnight, it's the channel that you should have thought about six months ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome advice. 
How are we doing on time, Jeff? Uh, we are out of it. We are out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a feeling. Oh, great. <laughs> That's so crazy. I feel like we, we could have like three oh, more. We should have like Anum part, part six. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's so much. I had uh, a couple of questions, but they're going to have to happen at a later date. So we'll... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. No, it's okay. You guys... You guys had it, a fun run it, over there. It makes sense. I like. <laughs> I got one. Maybe question. you guys should see if the podcast season does well because you're gonna like record five more episodes and no one's gonna like me and it's gonna be a total waste of time. So we'll, we'll do persona interviews. So what do you think of Anum? Be, <laughs> be honest. We'll really listen to them. Yeah. For the first time, we're gonna take our learnings in this podcast and just reapply it to the podcast. It's just, <laughs> awesome. It's podcast well. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we learned a lot. I hope that all of you listening have learned something. Um, if you have questions for Autumn, where can we contact you? Twitter is probably the best place. My Twitter handle is super easy. It's just at Autumn, A-N-U-M. Or if you want to just learn more about content without um, tapping on the shoulder, you can check out AnumHussein.com, which is A-N-U-M-H-U-S-S-A-I-N.com. And I'll have a link in the description. Yeah. Perfect. Yes, we will. Um, and for anyone who is interested in us three, instead of <laughs> us, um, which is usually a, a fewer people, um, uh, we have an email address. Oh, it's hello at uxandgrowth.com. Hello at uxandgrowth.com. So confident. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, Please reach out if you have any questions. Um, if you have questions for Anum and you send them to us accidentally, we will, we will forward them uh, to the appropriate places. Thank you so much, and have a great rest of your day.